This is a big one. It is a big one. This is a big one because it, well, I mean, it asks us to think about what are we even trying to do here, right? I mean, we, we talked about the structure of legal systems. We talked about how to make legal arguments and how the various causes of action are broken down. But at the end of the day, you got to know why a law would say this rather than that, why it would favor, you know, this kind of activity over that kind of activity. W- what are we even trying to do here? And yeah, the alternative is... Um we're standing at a random number generator hitting a button and it's just giving us answers at random, right? That's right. the alternative to we want it to be a particular way because X, we where could, X is an answer to the, <laughs> we want it to be because, right? And as you and I have discussed before, Joe, I mean, we can make truly determinative law in one sense. If we just passed a statute saying that anytime someone is getting, anytime someone has a fight and they want the government to resolve it as a plaintiff, we're going to flip a coin. Just come in and say you've got a fight and we'll flip a coin and we'll say who the winner is. And that, and that, will that would have the virtue case. of determinacy, if, if, <laughs> if virtue it is. Right. Uh, it has some other problems. Right. <laughs> Nam- <laughs> namely that it is, well, at least it's upfront about the fact that it, uh, that, that it is a rule that has right. no purpose behind it. Yeah, it doesn't appear to do anything to connect means to ends. So these are three readings that I asked the students to, well, three separate pieces in Larry Solom's excellent... Uh, um, the um, great resource. Uh, legal Theory Lexicon, which has, you know, just a bunch of different terms, topics in legal theory, and he kind of goes through them carefully as Larry always does to explain them and give students, like arm students with tools that they can use, um, mainly aimed at law students. But I think there's a lot here to be learned by people who are just interested in law. Very true. And so I gathered together three of these, which I think hit to the core of, you know, what, what do we, there are different things we could be trying to do when we do law, different kinds of aims that we could have. And the kind of question that we're asking here is, is why should we, you know, when we're arguing that law should be X rather than Y, either that we should... Um, maybe, maybe we should prohibit states from prohibiting abortion or we should allow states to prohibit abortion. We should restrict speech in this way or we shouldn't restrict speech in this way. We should have a law extending health care to all these people or maybe we should leave that to the private market. Like these are all legal and policy choices that we could make. Sure. And what we what we don't have and we, we haven't, you know, in the in the first couple of episodes, the first couple of readings, we talked about, you know, why you would have reason, what, you know, how you might go about thinking about who makes those decisions yeah. and and how the legal system processes them. but you know, how do you do it? Like, what kinds of reasons would you cite to say the law should be X rather than, than be Y? And, and to map it back to the very first conversation, uh, this, this question about reasons is something that, that every one of the three major function groups, legislative, judicial, and executive, right. they're going to have a version of this question. They'll talk right, about so it's it not their, like only yeah. one institution has to cope with it. Everyone has to cope with it. Just like we talked about, like every, when we're talking about Marbury against Madison, like even if you didn't have a rule saying that the Supreme Court, you know, would basically in the end say what the law is, the legislature itself would have to apply the Constitution, right? The, the, the Constitution is addressed to the legislature. They right. should themselves evaluate. But, and the president's and, and this, bound uh, to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. The Constitution says that. So, so everyone uh, it has to confront the question where I'm trying to make sense of what the law should be rather than just say, state what it is, right. uh, is going to have to deal with this quandary. So I've got a couple of, I, I just wrote down a few different kinds of reasons. These are more flavors of reasons that people could give for a law being one way or the other way. Just to kind of tee up why you might move to this slightly more abstract level about, well, what are we trying to do? Is it utilitarianism, deontology, virtue ethics? Is it, does it fall into one of these headings or not? So, so tell me if you're familiar with these kinds of arguments, Joe. Hmm. 
We should regulate because that kind of behavior creates unpriced externalities. I've heard you've heard like that, that phrase before, oh, sure, sure. and we will we will cover that in more detail in actually the next reading. But this idea that I'm doing something which is causing harm to other people, right? Um, that arrangement will lead to a tragedy of the commons. You've heard that phrase before. I have. People are likely to make mistakes. You've heard that before. Sure. So if this is the rule, people are likely to just make mistakes and do things they don't intend to do. That would be a reason for maybe nudging them one way or creating a different regime, right? Be a reason for not having a rule. If this rule is, if we use this rule, it will be, it will create lots of errors. Yeah. Or, 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 you know, under this legal regime, they're likely to fill out the form wrong or, or they may so guess wrong it. about this. So let's change it, right? Yeah. It can just be a reason for legal change. Or if we don't have a legal rule at all, like channeling them, they will maybe enter agreements. They'll do things on their own, which will be like just mistaken. They'll, they'll just, yeah. Uh, so, uh, another is uh, relatedly people are being duped or making uninformed decisions. Mm. People just don't have the information to decide. Mm. So maybe, maybe we want to regulate. Um, some people are more powerful than others and may actually use their power to coerce others to do things they wouldn't do absent that kind of coercion. Maybe yeah. we want to get involved in affecting that kind of thing. Another competition will harm us in some way, but non-competition will harm us as well. So in other words, you know, if we leave things to a market, somehow that market, the competition within that market leads to harms. That can happen. Sure. But if they don't compete, maybe there's one dominant actor and there's no real competition. That's also harmful. So what do we do in that situation? Usually in different ways. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, The last one I have here is like competitors' actions are harmful. So if we have people in a market in some way, they may do things that harm other competitors. So that's another. So all of these are kinds of like, I, I, I'm stating them very generically, and maybe maybe the explanation here, um, exposition suffers from not relating them to specific cases. But mm. but at least you've heard versions of this kind of thing before, right? Well, sure, sure. In, in each of these cases, and and I, I just raise this because it has to be that there's some basic assumptions at work which would cause us to say, yeah, that's a reason for regulating, or that's not a reason for regulating. In other words, those are whether those are good reasons for passing a law or deciding a case a particular way depends on what we're aiming at in the end, right? Like, what are we trying to do? And unless we know what we're trying to do, we can't figure out whether, well, are people, is, is, is the fact that some people are making uninformed decisions, is that something which we want to do something about? Is that a problem? Is it not a problem? The fact that you're suggesting that law is a tool we could use to solve a problem we're describing that way implies a lot about what things you think are problematic and which are not. Right. And why, which things you'd be willing to deploy state power to address and which ones you wouldn't. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, maintenance around a house. And unless you know the purpose of the house and what you're trying to do, you're not going to know whether to like tighten this screw or that screw or whether to care about it or not, or whether a hole in the wall here is actually a problem or not. You know, it depends on right. the purpose of the, of the house. Yeah. Um, so it's also the only way you can really figure out the, the social cost of what you're doing, because the, the real cost of a thing is the thing you can't do because you're doing this one instead, uh, otherwise known as opportunity cost. Uh, so I- unless you have a sense for the, the range of things you want to accomplish and how they relate to each other, you don't really even understand what you're giving up to get the thing you want. Right. Yeah. You have to know a lot about what you're after. Which is a matter of making some decisions about the way you want to proceed. Like what is our what is our purpose together here? What are we, what are we trying to accomplish? And so I just want to, as a first cut, just like Larry does in these, you know, these excellent articles, the first cut I want to make is between something called consequentialism and non-consequentialism, right? So consequentialism is a multisyllabic word 
which which really means like is is uh um uh, will we make decisions based on what happens because of those decisions or will we think that those decisions can be good or bad in themselves right so consequentialism is a if you adopt a, a consequentialist attitude you're adopting criteria for good and bad that derive from evaluating the consequences of the decision that you make so if I'm consequentialist about my decision whether to host this uh, series of podcasts with you, Joe, mm. it means that I will know whether I made a good or bad decision based on the consequences of that decision, which means may, I may listen to the episodes and I may think, well, did they turn out well or badly? And I'll compare it to what might have been. And I'll say, well, okay, so that was a good or bad decision based on the consequences of that decision. But it's not just after the fact, it's also before the fact. It would mean that the way you had thought about it in advance would have been, well, you know, I thought I would get these good things right. and I thought it would produce maybe some of these bad things oh, and boy. the former outweighed the latter. Yeah, so, right. you know, I was willing to do it. That's right. And, but that's not the only way And that could turn out to be right or wrong, as right. you say, after the fact. Now, you, you, so, so students might be hearing this as, as I did. I think the first time I encountered this distinction, I'm like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> what? What other possible way of figuring out whether to do something could you possibly have other than <laughs> thinking about, like, what are the consequences of doing that thing, right? Uh, so what is it? How could you possibly be so-called – and let's add another syllable to this, shall we? Are you okay with that, Joe? Sure, sure. Non-consequentialist. Mm. How many syllables is that? A lot. Non-consequentialist. Is that six? I think so. I, you know. It's more than three. <laughs> so like, how could you ever be anything but? Like, how could you make a decision? Here's when you'll notice that – you, you may be engaged in a deontic or non-consequentialist train of reasoning. Mm -hmm. um, you find yourself saying, I know it has those benefits, but in spite of the, uh, the other course has those benefits. I'm going to do this other thing, which has lots of bad consequences. Mm -hmm. Even so, even in spite of that, I'm going to do it anyway. Because the times when you, you right notice this do. tend to yeah. be times when it gives you an answer of, different from the one the consequentialist answer gives you. Right. Right. Which says, go with the thing that has more benefits. This one you're going with that has more harms. Why would you do that? Well, you, there's some principle at stake that you think is important without regard to yeah. benefits. There's an interesting, you know, it, it gets a little muddy. That's when one thing you, you notice. It. Yes, that's right. And because you are. You're saying that what matters is the principle. Like this is, you know, I know that it would be better for me or even better for someone else if I did this thing. Right. Right. And it, just in terms of cost and benefits, but now, it's not you, the right thing to do. And once you think of, you, you said it was, you know, it gets muddy. I mean, one, one problem, well, one characteristic about consequentialism many people have noted is that it is this, it's a form of reasoning that's quite imperialistic, right? Mm -hmm. It tries to take over every other form of reasoning. Right. Yeah. So, so you'll start to hear people say things like, well, you know, uh, hewing to principle must give you a lot of psychological benefit. Mm -hmm. So in the end, you're a consequentialist too. Right. Right. Um, yeah, these are complicated arguments. So I want to get into utilitarianism. I want to march through these just a little bit, maybe get some key examples in each of these areas to just motivate the reasoning. Yeah. Um, but I want to say at the outset that I think, you know, among law students who um, often comes in, come in somewhat kind of skeptical of theory, um, this, this is one of the more abstract levels at which we operate, like thinking in terms of like, are we utilitarian or deontological or into virtue ethics? And, um, and, and I think it's a good impulse to be skeptical of moving up uh, an order of abstraction unless you can see the benefits of it. Sure, sure. But I, this is one of those 
key high-level distinctions, though, that you can actually see in legal opinions, right? I mean, you can actually see an argument that, you know, this is a, this rule is right in itself. And, you know, it, it, there'll be citations to moral principles or to deeply held beliefs or, you know, rather than to, well, if we do this, then these other things will happen, right? So that consequentialist, non-consequentialist distinction is something which is not foreign to the law at all. It's, it's central to our modern experience of the law. And you see both even in modern day practice. Would you agree with that? Totally. Okay. So utilitarianism. Boy, okay. So this is, this is actually a family of consequentialist philosophies that basically we, we met. So, you know, the question, once we've decided to be consequentialist, we still haven't said, well, what, is, what are good consequences and bad consequences? We still haven't said that yet, right? True. And so utilitarianism tries to provide an answer to that, which says consequences are good or bad by the amount of good that they do. Okay, still, in some way, that's still circular. And, it, and in the end, this will all be circular in a way, won't it, Joe? Can we ever escape the circularity of all this? Mm. The way that most utilitarian, utilitarian thinking goes in law these days is more towards the law and economics end, which we will cover in a, in a future class. True. But where the, the, the kind of the dominant approach is to say, you know what, people just prefer things. Some people prefer X, some people prefer Y. We don't know why they prefer these things, but they do prefer things and they are they are better satisfied, maybe happier, although I don't want to get into the hedonic stuff, right? But they are better satisfied when those preferences are satisfied. And so from an individual perspective, right, things, consequences are better when those consequences would satisfy more preferences. Preference satisfaction is the ultimate end, right? Right. And who knows where these come from, right? We're not, you know, we're, we're not saying what the preferences should be now, just individuals have these preferences. Some people like vanilla ice cream, some people like chocolate ice cream. And in a world where five people like vanilla and one person likes chocolate, a world that delivers vanilla ice cream will satisfy five people uh, at the expense of one, and that's a better result because it's the best, uh, you know, it's the best result for the most people. Now, when it comes to using this in a legal environment, uh, I think another distinction that, that Solemn notes and that I think it becomes quite important is the difference between act consequentialism and rule consequentialism. Yeah, I was just about to get to that. So uh, how, would you, how would you distinguish those? Well, the... I think it's one way to describe it is is sort of the unit of analysis. Is it the person or is it the full range of people using a general standard? Mm-hmm. And uh, the the rule utilitarianism looks to the latter and says, "What's the rule?" Not you don't you. It, it's kind of hopeless to think we could think about every individual behavior, right? Yeah. What we've got to try to aim at is rules that that over over the run of cases will get us more positives than negatives. Yeah, and there's a good discussion we could have maybe at another time about whether it's even possible to be act utilitarian in the most granular sense, right? Because act utilitarianism evaluates each individual decision at some level of analysis and asks what decision by an individual, by a state, by whomever, right. will produce the most good for the greatest number of people. Uh, and again, we have to get into how you would measure that thing, right? right. Whereas rule utilitarianism says, look, if we adopted this rule rather than that rule, which will govern a range of decisions, which of these rules governing an entire range of decisions will be better? So let me just give you an example. As you know, Joe, I'm a vegetarian. I do know that. Yeah. So look, this is complicated as to why. There are lots of reasons why, right? But I just determined that overall, like not eating things with faces is what I'm going to do. Okay. Okay. And like you, you can criticize that on all kinds of grounds. Like it's over-inclusive, under-inclusive. You should eat this in this situation, not in this other situation. Assuming it's like for environmental reasons, for example, if that were one of the reasons, like in this situation, it would be better to eat this animal rather than this plant, et cetera. So on an act-by-act basis, right, 
you could criticize my decisions, right, as not being utilitarian if, in terms of my goal and my ultimate preferences. Right. But, you know, by God, life is hard. Don't you think? <laughs> I do. It, it's hard to like think of like every decision we make. Sometimes we just want to make decisions automatically. We, we, we need clear rules, right, to make in order to navigate life. Yeah. Am I right? I mean, we have rules for ourselves. Like you, you sure. we have rules about which we're not even aware about, like how yeah. we get out of bed. You rules know, what, are standards. Yeah. But how we, how we get to school, you know, how we get to work, like what we do there, yeah. how we treat other people. Most of these things are governed by kind of rules of thumb that we have about. Yeah. Habits play, sort of play a role here. And yeah, you bet. So that would be my acting in a kind of rule utilitarian manner, right? That I'm best able to satisfy my preferences, my outward looking and inward looking preferences by adopting this rule, which governs my behavior rather than evaluating in each individual situation, what to do. Yes. And you know, the students should think in their own lives, like what, what kind of rules of thumb do you have for right and wrong behavior? And are there situations in which like, yeah, if I could be more granular with it, it would actually be a little bit better. Um, okay. So, uh, so put that together with the preferences and you've got about, you know, 80% of legal conversations about consequentialism. That's right. And, and, and we're going to, you know, cover this in a deeper way in the law and economics reading yeah. as we kind of figure out how this is operationalized in, in law. It, it really is. Um, there are some objections to this that Solon covers. And I think that um, we, we will discuss in class the rights objection. Like, so an example here he gives is slavery, right? Is the reason that slavery should be illegal? Um, and I think uncontroversially, we both think it should be illegal, right, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. So we're taking a bold, courageous position here that slavery should be illegal. It's the most but, understated use of the word uncontroversially <laughs> I think I've encountered in months. But the, the interesting question, of course, is why? Like what reasons? Yeah. And, and, and is it really a sufficient reason that, well, if, we, if slavery is illegal, more people will have their preferences satisfied? Or do we really think there is something there would be something immoral, even if you could show that like some people would be super happy with it and it would outweigh people who'd be slightly unhappy about it. Like, I think if you did a utilitarian analysis, you, th- you would conclude, of course, slavery should be illegal just on utilitarian grounds. But like, is that the reason that it's illegal? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't like, it doesn't necessarily strike the mind or the heart uh, as the real reason that you think slavery should be illegal. And I feel like no college level conversation about consequentialism is complete until someone mentions uh, sadists being permitted to murder masochists. <laughs> so consider that mentioned. Is this, uh, are we going to turn to brains and bats next? No, no, no. Okay. D- different episode. <laughs> Th- then there's the self-defeating objection that if you're really utilitarian in every situation, you would be paralyzed with decision-making problems. And this is, this kind of comes back to the example that I just gave, yeah, right? Um, in terms of hair and having rules of thumb. Yeah. This, this uh, philosopher hair. Uh, and then the impossibility of interpersonal comparisons, which I think is useful. I just want to flag it because I think it's an important kind of objection. People say, well, you can't just say that like my increment of happiness more than offsets your increment of sadness. Like how do we compare like my happiness and your sadness or your, your disappointment with my glee? Like these interpersonal comparisons are necessarily hard. And so utilitarianism pretends at a kind of precision that it can't really uh, deliver on. Yeah. Deontology. So let's leave utilitarianism behind, Joe. And go to what is, I think both, as we mentioned at the top of the chat here, kind of intuitive, but also non-intuitive. Because like I just said at the beginning, like it's it's intuitive that like in making a decision that you would think, well, if I make a decision this way, these things will happen. If I make a decision another way, these other things will happen. And I just want to make it in a way that makes the best things happen. That's 
consequentialism, right? And you might think to yourself, how could there be anything else? And deontology is the something else, right? There is another way of thinking about decisions other than by gauging them based on their, on their consequences. So maybe an outcome or a, a, a decisional outcome, if you like, is, is right or good if it's consistent with certain moral duties or prohibitions. In other words, there's an overriding moral theory irrespective of consequences that tells us whether decisions or actions are right or not. Um, so what are some moral principles that we might cite here? So some examples. We might look at autonomy and freedom. Like maybe a reason a choice is good is because you made it unconstrained by someone else. Like there's no boot of the state like stamping on your face, forcing you to decide one way or the other. Even if it's a wrong decision or a bad decision in some like uh, uh, consequentialist sense, the fact that you made it is important to us, right? And so maybe that's, maybe realizing autonomy and freedom are reasons to make a decision one way or the other way. Other things like equality, justice, distributive justice, another topic that we'll talk about, solidarity, you know, the fact that a decision reinforces our togetherness, like all of these things can be principles that we can realize in a decision that may make that decision good or bad, irrespective of the, of the kind of the downstream consequences of it. And the point here is that people don't just have preferences for these things. It's not just that I prefer equality or prefer autonomy. It's that they are somehow implicit in goodness itself. Like when we talk about what is good or bad, that there are some principles that are necessary for saying that they are good or bad, irrespective of consequences. And we'll get into So there are just two that I want to discuss quickly, just highlight as Rawls and Kant. But I wanted to get your reaction to that, Joe, on, on reading this. I mean, this is at once like... It, you know, kind of, hmm, kind of emotionally obvious that that there is uh, the kind of the deontological approach to decisions and and law, but on the other hand, analytically foreign. I don't know. Did you have that experience? How do you think about these things? I think of it as analytically foreign. I mean, I I think to me, the deontic reasoning is. F- feels like the sort of reasoning that you would expect from people who have a specific legal job to do in the legal system mm-hmm. because of that word duty. Mm. And it's a, it's a way to talk about hewing to a legal rule because it, it just baked in. This is what I have to do. Like this is the thing that if I don't do it, reality doesn't make sense. So uh, this is what yeah. I promised to do, or this is, it's my duty to do it. And it, uh, everything is woven together so that this happens. So you're a judge who has to, who has to, you know, by law, hand down what you think of as a harsh sentence, which will cause more harm than it does benefits. And you have an institutional obligation to hand down the harsh sentence. And in some sense, like your consequentialist evaluation of handing down is irrelevant. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, I mean, the way you started your description, it, it could be the sort of thing someone might feel bad about. And I'm, I'm saying something slightly different, which is that it's, it's, um, yeah, I'm trying to test it in a you way, know, right? The, 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 um, you know, it is a good in itself that you do it. Mm-hmm. It's, you don't feel bad about it. It's your duty. You embrace it. That's yeah. why you do it. Yeah. It's a, it's a full and complete answer to the question why. Yeah. 
Boy, uh-huh. this is sending, this is sparking a lot of thoughts. I want to get into, uh, it makes me want to get into theories like Raz's theories of authority and everything else. And I don't want to, we're not going to go there. Right. We don't have time to do everything, do we? No. We can't do everything. Kant um, really is, I think Larry's quite right, that Kant really is the philosopher who is, who is most associated with this perspective on so this. i want to we, we're going to do a, a, a thumbnail kant in one second which oh is just but uh <laughs> but uh, it, it, just just very briefly but let, let's do rawls reflective equilibrium first right okay. it, it, i think it captures something psychologically really interesting even if you aren't okay. bought into it as a theory of the good mm-hmm. like a, um as a theory of what one should do but this idea of reflective equilibrium is that we form considered judgments about particular cases so if i have a you can imagine yourself as a judge if you like, but you can just imagine yourself as some decision maker and you're trying to decide what is the good and right thing to do in a particular situation. And we'll talk about like lying in a second, right? But but whatever the situation is, like you have to make a decision. And and what uh, Rawls says is that we form considered judgments about particular cases which flow from our general principles. In other words, we have general moral principles in our head and uh, and those principles help lead to these judgments. But we revise our principles based on these considered judgments. So there is this reflection going on, right, in our heads, right? Like, I get a new case coming in. I have principles. Those principles would seem to dictate an outcome in that case. And maybe they do. But if the principles kind of conflict with my considered judgment, then I might revise my principles in light of this new information I'm getting in the case. Mm -hmm. And now... My, so my my it's uh, so I'm kind of iterating toward kind of consistent principles, which ultimately will render good decisions in all cases, right? And it's just this he calls an equilibrium, right? And it, it's a, it involves this like almost literally reflections going on in the head, yeah, right. Um, what what do you, does that does that psychologically capture how you think sometimes? No, no, that's well, interesting. Why would you say that? <laughs> it just doesn't, huh? I mean. Well, it, it, it certainly captures the idea that you can learn from an effort to apply the general to the particular, mm-hmm. and you can get feedback from that experience. Okay, we'll leave it there and let, let, let the students think themselves about whether they revise their principles in light of new information and then use that to make new principles, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have that kind of equilibrium, equilibrium directed reflection going on in your heads when you when you yeah. are doing these things so but we should move to kant mm, the big one it's a big one but the interesting thing is of all the thousands and thousands of pages that have been spilled on this including some of kant's own i think he, <laughs> right. he himself wrote thousands of pages right <laughs> quite a bit there are there are three formulations here which really do get a long way there in terms of giving you the core insight here, sure right um and 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 so the, the i think that the core insight is that good acts are not ones that are based on kind of pure desire or to satisfy one's preferences, but are based on a desire for the good, to achieve the good in some broader sense. And he has three equivalent formulations of how this is done. The first is that acts are good if they would be, if they would be good if a universal law of nature commanded them. So in other words, if your decision were replicated by everybody else in similar situations, how would the world turn out? Like, is, is that something? So it, it's really, it's like a marriage of kind of a pure deontology, a pure kind of floating in the ether set of moral principles and looking at consequences. But it's like an abstracted consequentialism, right? This is why I think it, th- these things are really related. I, I, maybe I shouldn't get into this. Maybe I shouldn't complicate the picture before we actually get deontology totally out on the table. But like Kant asks us to think 
okay, you're going to do this situation. You're going to make this decision in this particular situation. What if everybody did that? You know, what if everybody littered? Like, you know, what if everybody, when they got angry, just punched the person in the face who's in front of them? Like, you know, what, what if everyone, when people weren't looking, took money out of the cash register, right? Boy, that, that's a world where people wouldn't like ever let their guard down, where people would always be fearful of being punched, where, uh, where there'd be a lot of garbage to pick up. Like that would be a pretty crap world, right? <laughs> but it's not, I think it's not only consequentialism. It's, uh, the, 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 the logic of this is most compelling, I think, in a situation where it, it destroys its own condition of possibility. Mm-hmm. That it, it, if you if you try to imagine it as a universal rule or a universal standard, yeah. right, the, everything begins to break down at the most basic level. Right. Uh, that, such that to try to make the world that way destroys the world. Right. So if we have a bowl of chips and there are 50 people and say there are 30 chips and I want to take three of them. If everybody did that, it's not even possible to imagine a world where everybody in the room takes three chips. <laughs> because there are only 30, not 150. There are, I think there are only 50, rather. Yeah, exactly. Whatever the numbers are. Yeah. Um, okay. So a couple other equivalent formulations. We don't need to spend a lot of time on it. Acts are good that treat humanity as ends and not means to one's own ends. And this is just another way of saying that, you know what? You aren't special. Everybody else is just as important as you are. And if you can act as though everyone else is equivalent to you, boy, things would be better, right? In other words, people aren't there to help you get to your own preference satisfaction. Other people are, even if you conceive of them as preference-bearing entities, they are just as important as you are. And you can go through a lot of analytical philosophy and thinking about as to why this is basically equivalent, right? But that, that you know, other people's access to those 30 chips is just as important as yours are, right? The person who you're angry at, who you want to punch in the face is just as important as you are. And they want an unpunched face just as much as you want an unpunched face. Right. Indeed. So thinking of people, not as means to satisfy your preferences, but as ends in themselves, that is the, the uh, another way of talking about this universal imperative. And then acts are good if according to, if they're done according to a maxim that would be law in a kingdom of ends. Mm, that sort of marries the two. Yeah. That formulation takes the first two and kind of ties them together. So very quickly before, you know, and I think this is all we'll do, and we'll go to virtue ethics very briefly, but um, uh, one of the great examples here that kind of explores some of the promise and perils of deontology is this idea about lying. Like, when, is it okay to lie? Like, at what level do you formulate a, a rule to yourself about lying? Or at what, what are the reasons that you would have for lying to someone or not lying to someone? And you might think, well, lying is always bad right? That's a kind of a deontological statement about whether to lie in a situation. Well, the reason I'm not going to tell a lie is because lying is wrong. Mm-hmm. That's deontological rather than consequences. Notice I haven't said anything about consequences. And the reason this co- comes up in, in every academic discussion of Kant is because Kant himself obsesses on this as an example <laughs> Yeah, uh, throughout his writings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, he's very troubled by uh, the notion that people might persuade themselves that lying is permissible. So it stated at that level of generality, like, should one lie, right? And just saying, should I lie in any situation? If we imagine that the, the rule of the universe were that everybody could lie, like, so, so I decide whether I'm going to lie. And if I apply uh, Kant's universal maxims here and I say, well, uh, if, if I decide for myself that lying is okay, then I have to understand that other people will also decide that. Right. 
and what will that world look like, then it's a world where no one can rely on any communications because Correct. everyone might be lying. And, and that's and a bad so, world. And so in an effort to figure out a principle for communicating, I, I entertain a principle that would destroy the possibility of communicating. Right. That That's... That's just what I was saying before about destroying the con- the, possi- the, con- the possibility conditions, right? right. Uh, so that can't be the right answer. It, to, I'm going to approach communicating in a way that destroys the possibility of communicating. But we can, as no, we, I'm not. <laughs> as, as as we do in law, though, we could complicate this by sure. well, by complicating the facts a little bit and seeing that there are some subtleties here, right? And so, if we say instead of you know, is it okay to lie? We could ask a more specific question. Is it okay to lie when a significant other says, do I look good in this outfit? It's a different question. Maybe you still say that it's not okay to lie, that you should be honest about that. Um, but it does have a different valence than, is it okay to lie when you ask whether you, uh, whether you had your hand in the cookie jar, right? When you're trying to save yourself from something by deceiving another, right? right. The, the, the notion that you're kind of deceiving your significant other by suggesting that, that they look great in something that maybe you think they look better in something else. Maybe you have preferences about that, but you know that what's important here is that they feel good about what they've chosen. Yes. And let's not forget that we're asking questions about a principle for communication. And so it's important to recall, what is the person actually trying to communicate with you about? And when your partner says, do I look good? What they're asking you is if you, do you feel okay telling them they look good right now? Right. And that is like, is that something that is okay with you? Are you, are you good to do that or not? And if you are good to do it, can you please do it right now? That's what they're really asking you. So, you, although they're using okay. different words, so even this somewhat like trivial example, in a way, shows that there's some complexity here. And we could take this as Solom does, and it's like this is also a um, a trope in in philosophical circles. We could take this all the way to you know the Nazis are at your doorstep, they're knocking and they're saying, "Are, are you harboring any Jews in there?" And you are harboring Jews to save them from the Holocaust, right? And this is a example that is you know kind of constantly gone over. Is it okay to lie? Is there a moral obligation to lie in such a situation? Yeah, that, that's what's uh, that's what I think is the most powerful about the example is because it's it's a it, it's a bit of a suggestion that any moral system that doesn't direct you to lie on this occasion, there's something wrong. Something with that wrong moral with system. it. Yeah, like the, it, you're really sharpening the the contrast and the conflict there. So you know, just kind of going through these examples, we can see that how you would actually operationalize right this. Um, uh, this kind of uh, universal imperative here, like how, how you would do this kind of depends a lot on the level of generality. Mm. Like if you just say, is it okay to lie? Well, it depends, right? You might say, right? Well, if it depends, then how many situations are we going to go through to construct this rule set that you have about how okay it is to lie, right? And and maybe this is a problem. Maybe it's a problem that make that renders uh, deontology indeterminate. Like it doesn't really provide answers because every situation is a new situation that we have to deal with. Um, maybe it lacks rigor as Solom goes through and in a way virtue ethics, which is a return to kind of Aristotelian analysis mm-hmm. is, is, is like a recognition and embrace of the fact that, you know what, guys, we are not going to figure this all out, right? We, we are not going to figure out in advance what the right action is in every possible situation. And so Virtue ethics, in a way, kind of gives up on that project of saying we can project the future and know exactly what decisions should be made in the future based on either consequences or on just general moral principles. And it says the best we can do is hope that we are decent people who mean well and that we should try to construct systems which encourage people to cultivate the virtues that we want to see. And then if a virtuous person person will make the right decisions or will at least make decisions which are 
as good as it's a little more demanding than that i think it's telling us that we should that that if we if we take as a given that that morality is an activity Mm -hmm. uh rather than a list um or a, a a calculus outcome if it's a if it's a lived activity that is always at least partly deeply particular and granular that it's not just that we build a system and hope like you have a you have this is the part of it that it, that do, that uses that a, a duty frame i think yeah um uh, you're you're bound to try yeah. right it, part of being ethical is that you are actively engaged in trying to live this life that is virtuous and I, but i i guess i'm saying that from the perspective of the legal system if if you adopt a um, a virtue ethics approach, you might try to design legal rules that put people in situations that will help to cultivate their virtues and diminish the temptations away from virtue. So I'm thinking here about sure. rules about like um, uh, uh, conflicts of interest, like judges recusal, mm-hmm. the way that you structure institutions, the way that you prevent lobbying or the way that you structure campaign finance reform. Uh, um, the- you could also try to come up with legal rules that uh, try that, that, Try to learn about where people tend to fall short, yeah, in various situations or stages of of their ethical development, right? Because you might need to either reinforce those, or you might need to try to deter people away from them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, not just to give people opportunities or encouragements, but to engage in some punishments as well. That again, knowing that some people will fall short in certain right. ways. So, in tort law, like we've talked about, like you know, if and we'll talk about this more in law and economics when we, when we get to it. Um, but in a situation in which it makes good social sense to prevent a source of possible injuries, say I'm running a business and I want to, you know, I have an opportunity to install some safety equipment. Um, we can make it so that you will actually be punished if you don't take into account the danger that you're posing, that you're imposing on others. Right. And, and that, that kind of backup legal risk, I mean, that, that backup kind of legal norm forces you to kind of cultivate that virtue of thinking about others, right? And thinking about their, uh, their possible injuries. It gives you that incentive and kind of shunts you toward that kind of thinking, even if it doesn't tell us exactly like, well, will that be actually in a given situation? Like, should you have prevented that specific injury or not? Well, that's kind of harder to say, right? It's harder to say. And we use a legal standard there and we do other things to try to basically get businesses and, 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 and enterprises thinking about what their effects will be on their customers and other third parties. Right. Um, and, and that's a way of like extending this to like primary liability, even beyond just like, uh, conflict of interest rules and how we choose legislators and like anti-corruption rules, which are just, the, I think the most obvious form. like, we're yeah. not trying to dictate what their decision should be, but like, Hey, if we insulate you from lobbyists, it's more likely that others will see you as making good decisions, but you'll also actually be in a position in a position <laughs> where you won't be influenced by things you shouldn't be influenced by. Right. Okay. Well, I think we should end it there. There's a lot to talk about here. And I'm interested in the students' own reactions after reading this. Like, is this stuff you already knew? Um, have you thought about your own decision-making? Do you think of yourself as more of a deontological thinker, as more of a consequentialist thinker? Are you, is, is, does that track your kind of, like, intuitive sense of decision making or your analytical framework for decision making or do you just try to cultivate virtues is it important for you to be a virtuous person um how do you think about decisions and then when you think about rules for others whether you're playing games and you're thinking about how what kind of rules you set and what you think of as cheating in games or you even if you thought about law writ large like what do you think the right approach is uh anyway 
super interested in how the conversation is going to go. And uh, we will now talk about the death penalty, but that'll be in the next episode of the show.